How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Dr. John Mayhew, former All Blacks doctor these days with the Warriors, joins us on the program. John, good evening. Welcome. Good evening. Uh, This sort of research has been out there, I guess, for the last two or three years. Uh, A lot of sports saying that what's actually doing the damage is not the big concussions, it's the constant knocking on the head. Does this surprise you at all that Scottish FA have come out and deciding finally to do something about it? uh, A few things I'll take issue with there is this this sort of uh, study hasn't been replicated anywhere else. And, uh, you know, the research is reasonably equivocal that, you know, repetitive you know, heading and uh, causes, you know, traumatic brain injury. So I think we just have to be clear on that. However, what I would say is that anything which reduces head trauma has to be good. So I don't think getting your head bashed around a lot uh, does you any good at all. Um, I'm uncertain whether that a study like this, which is of not great strength, and it doesn't take into account how much heading was done. And I heard you talk about the guidelines. I mean, that's, uh, it sounds like best practice, but not based on any science. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think it makes sense that you don't do repetitive heading, you know, five days a week because you don't need to do that in a game. You know, I don't know off the top of my head, to excuse the pun, you know, how many times a, a player heads a, a ball in a, the average soccer game. I'm sure that data is available somewhere. Um, the analogy I'd use in rugby, we used to have, you know, rugby coaches with 50 scrums at a training practice. And then, well, in the game, you only have 10 to 15. So was it an unnecessary burden? So I think uh, we have to look at look at the uh, the research with, you know, a degree of uh, not scepticism, but we have to acknowledge it as well. That, uh, and, of course, in, in football and soccer, there's other ways that their head can get injured, you know, collision with opponents' heads, you know, with the ground and with obviously goalposts and things like that. So certainly head injuries occur. Uh, the data where repetitive, you know, uh, striking of a header um, does a lot of, you know, long-term damage has not been proven. It's certainly possible, but I, I don't know if you can extrapolate from that and restrict the, uh, the number of training sessions uh, on the basis of that other than it being, you know, sensible rather than based on strict science. I mean, it's a big issue, concussion here at rugby, rugby league. It's putting a, a barrier up for a lot of mums wanting their kids to play these gladiatorial games. Are there any studies occurring here in New Zealand to look into it, to um, find oh, a solution to back up what, again, studies like this are suggesting? Yeah, well, the New Zealand Rugby Union, and uh, which I'm not a part of nowadays, uh, are doing a longitudinal study where they're looking at Everyone who's played first-class rugby in New Zealand since 1950, and following their health outcomes, you know, to death, uh, you know, degenerative neurodegenerative disease, heart disease, and all sorts of things. So, there's a lot of you know very good work, which are very powerful studies looking at it, and they're showing the sort of mortality and morbidity of you know ex-rugby players as much the same as the general population. So, it's obviously very early days. I mean, let's be clear, you know, dementia and neurodegenerative diseases, anyone, are multifactorial. You know, it could be head trauma, could be drug use, could be alcohol use, could be a genetic predisposition. So it's a very 
difficult area to be clear on. You know, what we do know is that repeated major head trauma is not good for us. Uh, the exact quantum is uh, unknown. I mean, the irony is that, you know, with rugby reducing the tackle height, are we going to sort of transfer the head injury to the tackler rather than the person being tackled? Um, because they, they may get the head hit by a knee or a hip or something like that as they go for a low tackle. So it's a very complex area, um, and I think we have to be aware it's not, not one size fits all, and just by changing a rule, do we uh, you know change the, the risks of, of head injury in rugby? I mean, rugby, rugby league, are, as you mentioned, a gladiatorial sport is a risk of injury. The only way you can reduce that risk is not play the game, yeah. um, which is obviously not going to be. But obviously we've got to make the game safer, and we've got to make it, you know, I mean, obviously head-eye tackling is not a good thing, and reducing it, uh, but going lower than the, the shoulder, is it going to make the game safer? I, hopefully it does, but I'm, you know, the, the data's not there at the moment. We've got to base it on science. Um, the other thing I'd say, just apropos that Scottish study, that there was a, a rugby injury study in Scotland which showed a huge increase in neurodegenerative disease amongst ex-Scottish rugby players compared with the general population. Uh, when it was reproduced in other countries, uh, they, they didn't match that data. So perhaps there's something unique about Scotland. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, John, people believe what they read. And I'd imagine there's a lot of footballers who have spent a lifetime playing football at a junior level and maybe at a you know, reasonably high level or even these days at a social level who might be reading this and maybe suddenly are a little bit concerned. Um, what's your message to them? Well, I mean, I think the, the, if they are concerned to go and get some you know, appropriate medical advice, I mean, obviously, the, if you're an ex-player, the horse is bolted in terms of that, but uh, most probably it hasn't done you any harm. Um, we know from the rugby and rugby league example, some people can have 10 concussions and uh, recover completely from every one of them and have no long, long-term problem, or sometimes people can have one or two and they have long-term issues you know, going forward. And, uh, you know, we've seen an exodus from the game of, you know, young, you know, all backs recently, the Ben Afiakis and uh, Dylan Hunt and guys like that who've had, you know, reasonably short careers um, and minimal head injury, but they the head injury itself has caused them to, uh, uh, you know, cause problems. So, you know, it, it's a very difficult and complex area, And uh, but I think the, the best if you're concerned or your family's concerned, uh, get the appropriate testing done, get it, get assessed, and uh, you know, get get advice from you know appropriately trained medical professionals. I mean, clearly the Scottish FA believe the data and the research um, that's been presented. You bring a a little bit more of a um, holistic approach to it, and I think you, you, what you said you've justified really, really well. But yeah. I mean, if there's any small chance here, should New Zealand football? follow what Scotland are doing? Shouldn't we be parking the ambulance at the top of the cliff rather than at the bottom of the cliff? Well, I mean, as I said, you know, it could be a pragmatic solution at the moment to say, well, let's, let's restrict the amount of heading that's done at training. I mean, if you hit the ball six times in a game, do you need to do it 60 times at training? You know, um, and obviously it's a skill that you have to practice, but it's not an exclusive skill. You know, and that's why I was sort of using the, the rugby scrum analogy you know, why train 50 scrums at a training session when you're only going to do 10 to 15 in a game, you know? Um, you know, you're, you're overtraining. I mean, a scrum is at risk even at training, you know? Um, so we, we need to be more intelligent about how we train for these events. And I think, you know, we know in rugby and rugby league now there's a restriction on the amount of contact training that's done, you know? I mean, teams like the Crusaders, they, they don't do a lot of contact training during the week. You know, a lot mm. of their, they might have one contact session. So, because you can get injured in training as well as the game. So, 
I think there's, you know, science for, for all injuries about, you know, minimising the risk of getting injured at training and at playing because it's, uh, you know, you do a lot more training than you do playing games and uh, so we have to be cognizant of that as well. But but to follow up your point, Mark, is that, um, yeah, I mean, if, if there's a risk in, in you know, of head injury from re- repetitive hitting, let's minimise the amount of hitting that's done in training at games. But I, I don't think it needs to be outlawed or anything like that. It's a, an important part of the game. Yeah, John, I mentioned it earlier, but it is a big barrier. Um, you know, mum's watching there and looking at league and rugby and saying, hey, look, there are a lot of concussions. I don't want my kid getting injured. Hey, I want them to go and play basketball. I want them to go and play some other sports. From your time as a, as a sports doctor, um, how much change have you seen in and around, firstly, um, the acknowledgement of the dangers of concussion, but also the steps that have been put in place to try and reduce it or at least trying to address the issue? I think the most dramatic change I've seen is uh, in the NRL, the National Rugby League, um, where when I first was involved in 2004 to 2005, you know, we were allowed shoulder charges and things like that, and, and players were often applauded uh, for getting knocked out and, you know, carrying on the game. You know, they're getting assessed and things like that. To the change now that they've come forward to where um, the head injury assessment uh, is um, very similar to, to rugby union, it's done in a, an ethical way, players are, are managed, and there's a perception that um, I know that when we the medical committee outlawed shoulder charges as part of rugby league. Everyone said the game was doomed, and you know rugby league would never be the same. Now, no one ever talks about it, you know, because it was an issue where you know shoulder charges, uh, shoulder tackles uh, injured the the person making them as well as the person getting receiving them. Um, so I think we can make you know appropriate safety changes uh, based on the evidence that's available to us. But certainly the changes in rugby league have been dramatic. I think in, in rugby union now we see at the the top level. Uh, you know, controversy of a player is not taken from the field for a head injury assessment. We saw it last week uh, or a week ago with one of the Australian players who, who was belatedly taken from the field. And even in the Women's World Cup final, there was criticism of the English uh, player who got concussed and took a while to take them off the field. Um, so I, th- I think we're getting better at it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's still a very hard area to, mm. to police. I mean, I have games sometimes and you, you're unaware the player may have received a head injury. And, uh, at, at the professional level, you have the video evidence, you have you know people spotting for you and things like that. So um, we're still trying to work out what best practice is. Uh, there's still a problem in the, the lower levels of rugby and rugby league and soccer. I presume that you know you know they're not trained people there or people don't recognise, and we still have an education piece there. But uh, um, you know it's difficult. I mean, and the the irony of the thing is that you know parents perhaps you know taking their children out of the gladiatorial sports is most probably under 12, under 13, we don't see a lot of head injury at that age group. You know, I mean, it's uh, mm. the, the, the collisions are, are a lot more minor. And you could argue that if we restrict people playing complex sports up to 12, they don't learn the techniques of tackling. You know, perhaps it's important that at the younger age they learn how to tackle, how to, how to uh, fall in a tackle, how to, uh, you know, tackle properly and things like that. Uh, whereas if they start that at 12, they may, may injure themselves more. So you may have more problems to a certain extent, but the outcome may, may be no better or maybe even worse. 
I remember uh, an interview um, by Robbie Farah, former hooker for the Tigers, yep. um, and he came out and said, look, it wasn't that difficult leaving the field and basically talking the doctor into going back out on the field. And there was also pressure from coaches at times in terms of having their marquee players out on the field, and um, no one was really saving them from their self. Um, from your experiences with the Warriors, has there been a shift at NRL level around that? Uh, I mean, are people these days... Oh, absolutely. Act- you know, yeah, yeah, I think I remember saying, making that comment, and... Uh, now all the games are uh, you know, monitored by the NRL. So if a player has what appears to be a headache injury and is not taken from the field, the club and the doctor will get into uh, get a please explain letter. Um, and if a player is taken off and assessed appropriately, and, and you know there's a, a protocol that you have to go through, which um, the NRL can see the results of the neuropsychometric testing you're doing. It's on a phone app, you know. So. They can access that, so you can't you can't fudge that. And um, so, if you misassess somebody and push them back on the field, uh, your day of reckoning will come, so to speak. So, no, no, I, th- I think in the professional sporting level now, it would be very hard to, for a doctor or a health professional to cheat that. Which, and obviously, we wouldn't want them to either. Um, and um, you know, we've had situations where doctors and clubs have been fined for not uh, doing it properly. So, I think. At that level, and, and in rugby, and NPC, and Super Rugby, and obviously international rugby, the scrutiny is there. The concern is at the lower levels of sport, where they have, don't have the availability of video evidence or monitoring and things like that. Uh, and there's a lot more sport being played at that level than at the professional level. So uh, that's still going to be the difficult area to to monitor. The psychometric testing that <clears throat> does go on the HIAs. Um, how um, sound are those tests? And what I mean, what do they involve? Can you just give a little bit of an explanation? Because we always hear about it, but I'm not okay. sure any of us fully understand what actually goes on in the tunnel. I, okay, so basically, so if you take the NRL, the player comes off the field for an HIA assessment. He has to be rested for five minutes, so you can't start doing the testing, uh, you know, after five minutes. Obviously, if he's got a uh, another injury, you deal with that in the the appropriate way, you know, if it's a cut or you know uh, something like that. But assuming he's just got a straightforward head injury, after five minutes, then you can go through an assessment, and it's uh, um, basically a combination of um, uh, memory recall, balance testing, and things like that. There's a, a certain protocol that you go through, which is uh, you can either do it on a paper-based app or you can do it on an app on your phone, which goes through information recall. Uh, number recall, um, you know, uh, word recall and things like that, uh, balance test standing on one foot, you know, standing on two feet, eyes closed, uh, walking on a straight line, um, you know, proprioception, you know, finger nose testing and things like that. So it's a, a proper test, which uh, a, a lot of people will be familiar with, and it's it's, it's quite easy to administer, um, but it's hard for a player to do. You know, you, you've asked the player to come off the field, he's got the adrenaline running from a game and saying, like, OK, I'm going to give you five words now and I want you to repeat them back to me. Um, and then I'm going to give you three numbers and I want you to repeat them backwards. So I'll say it's five, four, three, and you've got to go back backwards. And then it's four, four numbers, then you've got to repeat them to me backwards. There's five numbers and repeat them to me backwards. and You know, things like that. So they're... They're tests which you can't really cheat on, and you can't remember them. And you know, it's quite interesting. Sometimes the players mm. run off the field and they start the test now. I said, "We can't." Mm. And uh, you know, so they're, they're not difficult tests. You know, this is the ones that you do in the in the changing room, um, but they're a good screening test. And you know, if you fail an aspect of that, 
that's enough to say, well, you can't go back on the field. Then subsequent to that, there'll be more detailed testing, you know, uh, what we call COGSPATE, which is a, you know, about a half-hour computer-based um, uh, test, which will be done, you know, a day or two after the game uh, to look at things in more detail. And, uh, you know, we'll have a baseline test for all these. So uh, I'll know what the player did on, you know, the 1st of February. And when it's the, uh, the 1st of April, he's injured, I can compare, you know, apples with apples. And if he hasn't reached his baseline again or he's symptomatic, um, one of the things like you, you can see is that players can return reasonably quickly to their baseline test of uh, cognition and memory call and things like that, um, but they they may still have symptoms. You know, they may still mm. be headachey or dizzy or whatever. Um, and then you'd say, okay, well you've passed part of the test, but you're still so you know, you're not you're not fit to play. Once they've passed all the the cognition issues and they're asymptomatic, we then start a gradual exercise challenge. So they start you know, non-contact training. If they get through that with no symptoms, then they uh, have you know, light contact training and then go through that. So generally, it takes seven to ten days if someone's had a head injury to you know, as a minimum yeah. for them to get back to play. And uh, generally nowadays, if someone's a concussion, they won't get back within a week, you know, because of the protocols involved and. If you think uh, someone's been misassessed, you have to get, you know, mm. independent advice from someone outside the team environment to say, look, I, I've seen this person, I've assessed them, and um, you know they can come back, you know, within the seven-day uh, period. Um, so you know, there's there's a lot of structures in place now, and uh, different sports have different protocols, but they're they're much the same. And uh, you know, I, I think we're looking after player welfare. And if there's any doubt, you you keep the player out. And, it's an interesting thing now. Most of the players, you know, go along with that. You know, there's not that macho thing. Is it not? Uh, they're aware of. They've seen their colleagues who've had head injuries, and um, you know, they, they'll accept the diagnosis, disappointed but accepted. Mm. John, um, I, I, mean, I think I remember having a discussion with you. Maybe oh, must be seven, eight, nine years ago now, um, on a similar on a similar sort of issue uh, around concussion. And uh, I, I think at the time I was a little bit critical of the way the NRL did do things. Is there science? Is there a, such a thing as delayed concussion? I think it's generally delayed diagnosis of concussion. You know what I mean? Uh, that you know someone's obviously had the injury. Um, and it hasn't become immediately apparent, you know. So they might have played a game, got a blow to the head. No one's recognised it. They've gone home and um, they felt awful, couldn't sleep. They feel irritable, and then they come in the next day, perhaps to uh, you know their medical assessment or whatever, and then the diagnosis becomes apparent. And you know that that happens sometimes, as I mentioned, even with all the the right. Uh, situations in place, um, we can miss things. You know, you're unaware. You know, it's quite hard. You know, monitoring 15 players on a football field at times. You know, when things are going on, and and you won't see things happen. Or you know, maybe someone's made a kick, uh, a kick and was a slightly late hit, which no one notices. Um, and the player plays on, he doesn't think too much about it, and everyone's missed it till the next day. So I think it's delayed diagnosis rather than something which has been okay and then becomes apparent. Mm, okay, look, um, well, just trying to find a little bit of audio that I just want to play for you, uh, John. It's in and around the Tua Tangivailoa situation with the Miami Dolphins, where he's heavily concussed on week. They played him a week later, I guess to the surprise of everybody, only to pick up another major concussion. Uh, a former... Yeah. A former NFL, a former NFL coach. What was his name, Ben? Rex Ryan uh, came out and said this, and I, to me, this is, I guess, his apparent is is probably. I agree with it, but it's a very simplistic point of view that he does present. I just like you to have listened to it and then comment. 
And sometimes as a coach, you know what? You've got to protect the player from himself. And I had a simple philosophy as a coach. I treated every one of my players like they were my son. And that's all you have to do. And I can tell you this, all right? Would you put your son in, back in that game when you saw it? Forget this back and ankle BS that, that we, we heard about. This is clearly from head trauma. That's it, a concussion. I know what it looks like. We all know what it looks like, all right? My answer is this. No way in hell I put my son back in that, uh, in that game. No way in hell. And you know what? No way in hell I put somebody else's son back out there either. Yeah. This is an epic fail, and it's a fail on the coach, too. And I'm going to say this, all right? The coach, you are the last line of defense, all right? The NFL does an amazing job of protecting our players. We've seen it since we heard about how dangerous concussions are, especially going down, you know, 30 years from now even. We see it in the, our equipment, how much better our equipment is, all right? We see it in the protocols, five medical people and all that stuff, but it did fail, all right, our game is a violent game and things. All right, we're looking for things. But as a coach, you are the last line of defense. And I'm sorry, but I'm not letting that guy back out there. I've had it before, all right, yep. where a player has sat back and, and, hey, he's ready to go. No, he's not. I'm not putting you out there. Wow. Simple as that. John, from your experience, most of the major coaches these days in rugby, rugby league, share that philosophy? Absolutely. And it's quite ironic that... Uh, one of my sons is still playing for North Harbour and uh, I kept him out of a game this year because of a head injury, you know, uh, when it was very equivocal whether he was right or not. You know, he most probably could have played um, and we erred on the, on the uh, you know, the conservative aspect. And uh, so, you know, I've looked after three sons in professional rugby and a brother who played professional rugby as well. And when I was the team doctor, so I've had to make that decision. But you're right. I, my view is that the, the, the treatment I want to give to my players is the same as I would give to my son or brother or things like that. And uh, uh, you'd like to think that we, we do the best we can. Um, we'll sometimes make mistakes, and I'll sometimes think, well, I could have done better there. Um, but it won't be for lack of trying. But uh, I think it's a, he made it rather more dramatically than, than I could say. Yeah, I guess the pleasing thing in all of this, John, is the issues out there now, sports organisations are looking at it, whether it be play of collectives threatening to sue organisations or not, situation here in the NFL. It's good that it's out there. It's good that sports organisations, doctors are talking about it. There's more research being done. Oh, absolutely. I think we've got to be conservative. And going back to your soccer example, that I'm not totally convinced that you know the the, the long-term dangers of repetitive head and, of uh, heading, but if there's doubt, you know, let, let's be conservative about it and and monitor it and uh, reduce the workload, so to speak. Dr. John Mayhew, absolute privilege and a pleasure having you on the program. Have a great Christmas. Thank you for your time tonight. Okay, happy Christmas. Okay.